Thank you, Wes and Josh Marie. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, one of the key words in the book of Hebrews is translated many times, draw near or come into the presence or come to. In Hebrews 4.16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. In Hebrews 7.25, tells us Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. So being a Christian is more than simply believing a set of theological propositions. It's drawing near to God in faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been said that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Now, I, I, I don't want to disparage the word religion. The New Testament speaks of, um, of, uh, of self-made religion. It speaks of religion that is worthless, but it also speaks of religion that is pure and undefiled. And there is a religion of pure gospel Christianity that brings us into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, have those, those views, those two words as opposites. There's true religion and there's false religion, but true religion enables us to draw near to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It leads us to a vital relationship with our God. And so, in our text this evening, I'm going to read in just a moment, the word that is in other places translated draw near appears twice. In both cases, we have come to or we've not come to. We read of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. He says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. You have come to or approached Mount Zion. Now, after the message tonight, we're going to observe communion, the Lord's table, and we speak of coming to the Lord's table. And the question is, what is the basis for your approach to God? On what basis do you draw near to God? Is it on the basis of the law, your performance, how well you've done this week, this month, or whatever? Or is it solely based on the gospel, that which has been done for us in Jesus Christ, Mount Sinai or Mount Zion? And the contrast between these two could not be more starkly depicted than what we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. Now, as I read, I want you to do something for me. These, uh, this passage is highly descriptive, all right? So, I want you to uh, use your imagination. I want you in your mind's eye to see what he's describing and try to get a sense of both Mount Sinai and what he says about that and Mount Zion, what he tells us about that. So, please follow as I read Hebrews 12, verse 18 to 24. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given, even if a beast touches the mountains, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. 
but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are, enro- who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the reading of God's Word. So, our, the title of my message tonight is Two Messages, or Two Mountains, Two Messages. And my outline is very simple. The first mountain, Mount Sinai, and that's a verse 18 to 21. And I bet you can guess the, the second point, right? The second mountain, Mount Zion, verses 22 through 24. Now, I want to remind you that Hebrews is addressed first of all, to first century Jewish believers, who, some of whom were tempted to turn back to Judaism from which they had come. There was this outward appeal of Judaism because they lived in a Jewish culture. That was a predominant culture in which they lived, the predominant belief, the predominant lifestyle. And we feel the tug sometimes to, with, to the predominant culture and beliefs and value system in which we live as well. The cost of following Jesus was getting heavy in many of their hearts and lives. There was this family pressure, cultural pressure. There was persecution. There was ostracism. And the attraction to return to the fold, as it were, was strong for many. Now, it could be easy in the midst of that tension to forget this contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between Sinai and Zion. And so, we find here the writer taking us back to these foundational truths of the two covenants, Mount Sinai, where the Old Covenant was given, Mount Zion, which is the foundation of the New Covenant we have in Christ. Tom Schreiner says that the author paints in striking colors the difference between paralyzing terror and extraordinary joy. So, as I read this, did you, in your mind's eye, did you think and, and, and envision Mount Sinai standing there? Or, and then did you envision those descriptors of Mount Zion? We're going to look more in depth at each of those in turn. But uh, the description of Mount Sinai actually comes from Exodus 19, beginning in verse 16. I believe it's going to be put up on the screen for us. Uh, I'll read these verses, 16 to 24, on the morning of the third day, this is Exodus 19, immediately before Exodus 20 when the Ten Commandments are given. So, it's the lead up to the Ten Commandments. It's the approach to Mount Sinai. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. The Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. That's an oven where bricks were made, and and it would get really hot, and the smoke would go up through the stack in the top. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord 
and look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. Now, there are some biblical critics who look for naturalistic explanations for the supernatural phenomena we read about in the Bible. For example, there are some who say, well, God did not really part the Red Sea. The people of Israel marched across in a a, a shallow area they call the Sea of Reeds. They marched across uh, basically a marsh. That's all interesting. How did Pharaoh and all of his army drown in a marsh? Problems with that, aren't there? Well, in the same way, some have suggested that what is being described here in Hebrews 12 and, of course, in Leviticus 19 is actually a volcanic eruption. There's this volcano uh, erupting on Mount Sinai, and that, that accounts for the, the, uh, the spectacular nature of what is described here. This, this suggestion first came, uh, I read, in 19, or excuse me, 1873, which was an age of great skepticism about the supernatural. And many have, have, uh, have gotten on that bandwagon, bandwagon, speaking of a blazing fire and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a terrifying voice, and don't touch it under penalty of death. Some have even gone so far as to suggest that uh, Jehovah, who is mentioned here, is actually the, uh, a, a, a volcanic fire god of the Midianite people. Now, this is nothing more than a faithless effort to explain away the supernatural elements that are described in Scripture. And the reality is it could be plausible. I mean, you know, you could say, how did Nadab and Bahu die? Fire from heaven. Were they struck by lightning? Uh, would that simply be a natural occurrence or would that be sovereignly timed and targeted for them and nobody else at that moment? Still supernatural. But... It could be plausible to say this was a volcano, except there are a couple of fatal flaws. First of all, geologists have studied the area. There are no volcanoes in that area. There's no residue of volcanic ash. It's, 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 that's not how those mountains were formed. Secondly, the children of Israel camped at the base of Mount Sinai for 11 months. Who camps for 11 months at the base of an active volcano? Not possible. Even more impossible, Moses ascended the the volcano, Mount Sinai, and stayed there for 40 days, and then he returned alive. So clearly, we're not talking about naturalistic occurrences. We're talking about God supernaturally, divinely appearing, and his glory manifested in this dreadful manner described at Mount Sinai. But I want you to imagine, though, even though we reject that theory, imagine how terrifying it would be to be standing at the base of a mountain when it erupts and volcano uh, lava and ash spew out everywhere. And there's, there's loud thundering. It would be terrifying. I would suggest to you that what the Israelites saw that day and in those days when God manifested his glory there was even more terrifying. Sinful men were exposed to the sheer 
holiness and majesty and glory of God. Remember Isaiah the prophet, when he saw God, when God's glory was revealed to him in a vision, he cried out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and I have seen the Lord. He thought he was going to die in the presence of unimaginable glory. But let's consider here the description that we find in chapter 12 of Hebrews of Mount Sinai. The writer, remember, the writer saying, you did not come to this mountain. This is not what we find in the new covenant. This is not what we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. First of all, it's physical. This is a mountain that could be touched. It was one that Moses could ascend, but others were told to stay away from it. The, the, the writer is clearly describing, even though he doesn't name Mount Sinai, he's clearly describing that mountain depicted in Exodus chapter 19. It's a physical location. It's a physical mountain. And again, the, 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 late, the warning comes, as we'll look at in a moment, that says, don't touch it on pain of death. But secondly, he describes this blazing fire. Now, I remember years ago, I used to go camping with Glenn Surratt, and I, you know, we'd sit around the campfire at night, and Glenn would go, I love a good fire. Remember that, Glenn? Well, this is not a good fire that people loved. This was an out-of-control conflagration. It was terrifying. It was all-consuming. Moses describes the scene as thunder and lightnings, the Lord descending on the mountain with fire, and it was the mountain was wrapped in smoke. And there's darkness and gloom referring to the smoke that descended on the mountain. If you've never thought about this before, you might think, well, well fire gives forth light, right? But if you're in the middle of a house that is raging fire, it's actually not bright, it's actually very dark. Firemen talk about how dark it is, and you can get lost inside of a burning house because of the smoke. So there's this darkness. There's this gloom. It was terrifying for all to see. And then a tempest. The whole mountain trembled greatly. And that's certainly similar to what you would experience with a volcanic eruption. But it's also what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6 when he said the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. It's not at all like the scene David describes in Psalm 22 when he says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This was not a calm, quiet, pastoral, restorative experience. It was terrifying. And he describes it further as the sound of a trumpet in Exodus 19, it says that the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. It was loud. It was tumultuous. It was disturbing. In fact, this thunderous voice of God was so terrifying, the people begged, no more. We cannot bear to hear the sound of God speaking to us any longer. Moses, you speak for him. It's Mount Sinai. It was untouchable. Even an animal touching it would be stoned to death. There were limits placed around the mountain, and uh, anyone who would cross those limits was to die. All in all, this is 
a terrifying sight. Even Moses, the friend of God, the man who, who first had this uh, personal conversation with God at the burning bush, who on numerous occasions spoke with God and God spoke back to him. Moses said, I tremble with fear. This entire scene is intended to depict for us the awesome holiness and majesty of God and the constant message that we find in the Old Covenant, keep a safe distance. Do not draw near. Do not get too close. Keep away. And the reason for that is because the stark contrast between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. And that continued on. The the experience of Sinai was temporary. They were there for 11 months, and then they left. They were there, and then they left. But the the, the restrictions continued. If you think about the restrictions for the tabernacle and then ultimately the temple around the Holy of Holies, only the priest only once a year, only when properly consecrated, only with the the proper sacrifices, only, only, only. And anyone who enters the Holy of Holies at the wrong time, in the wrong way, in an unauthorized manner, would be stricken dead. Much like we heard this morning, Nahab, Nahab and Abihu, or Nadab rather, and Abihu, were stricken dead because they brought unauthorized or strange fire before the altar of God. They were authorized to approach the altar and to serve there, but they did it in an improper manner. And we see here that the worship of God is so very holy, and He is uncompromising in His holiness. So, Richard Brooks says that the uh, Sinai reminds us of the terrors of God's majesty and how those terrors kept the people at a distance from him. Do not approach. Do not draw near. And the children of Israel were filled with dread. That's the first mountain, Mount Sinai. He says, you haven't come to this mountain, but you've come to Mount Zion, a mountain that invites us, draw near to the Lord with confidence Again, Brooks, writing the contrast, said, Zion reminds us that the wonders of God's grace draws people near to Him. The terrors of His majesty kept people away, but the wonders of His grace draw us, invite us to come near. Zion's welcoming. It's appealing. It's safe. It's a place for refuge. It's a place for wondrous delight. You when he says, you have come to Mount Zion, that word, you have come to, you've approached, it's in the perfect tense. And some of you are going, okay, that's perfect, great. Uh, but, but what it actually means, it means this is something that has happened. You have come here. But unlike Mount Sinai, when they were there for a time and then they left, the perfect tense, it's an accomplished fact And the results of it emphasizes that the results of that continue on. You have come to Zion, and you're still there. You've come there, and and you're there. And that is your ongoing, permanent experience. You've come to Mount Zion. You're still there, and all the benefits of Mount Zion are yours forever. Well, let's look at these descriptors here in Hebrews chapter 12 about Mount Zion. It's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
Now, what do you notice right out of the gate? This very first description of Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, city of the living God. That's speaking of heaven. That's not speaking of here in Greenville, South Carolina, right? It's speaking of the heavenly reality. And Paul tells us that our citizenship is in heaven, but we're not there yet. It points to our eternal home. And the writer says, you've come here, and yet we don't see ourselves there yet. Now, this takes us back to an important principle of understanding where we are in God's redemptive plan. We are in between the already and the not yet, right? Christ has already secured all of these great blessings for us, but we have not yet entered into all of them. We've already been redeemed. We've already been declared heirs of eternal glory. But we, and we've experienced some degrees of that glory, but we have not experienced the full measure. The hymn writer captures this dynamic when he speaks uh, in the sands of time. He says, oh Christ, he is the fountain, the deep sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness as mercy doth expand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. I've tasted these streams. I've got a foretaste of heaven. I've come to this heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. But I'm actually not fully there yet. It's not my daily experience. I've just got a a glimmer, a foretaste. But in Christ, we have come. And even though we don't see all of the blessings and benefits of it yet, we live by faith in his promises. Paul says, we fix our eyes on that which is unseen. What is seen is temporal, but what's unseen is eternal. So we set our hearts and our minds and the eye of faith on that which God has promised to us that day when we will see him and rejoice with unsinning heart, and we will see glory that we could not endure in our present condition. The second thing he says, you have come to angels, innumerable angels, in festal gathering. That reminds me of what we read uh, when John describes the scene in heaven around the throne in Revelation chapter 5. He says, I heard around the throne the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, that scene that John's describing here, we think of that as otherworldly. Is that taking place in the future in heaven, or is it going on right now, but we're not physically there? I think the answer is yes. I think it is right now. And there's a sense in which we have, uh, as one of the hymn writers said, we have this mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. But it's only by faith. It's not by sight. In Romans 8, you know this golden chain of salvation, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. These are all accomplished facts, past tense. But then it says, in whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, our glorification happens when we pass from this present life into eternity. When we lay aside this mortal body, And our spirits enter the presence of Christ in glory. That's glorification. And then ultimately we'll receive new and glorious perfect bodies at the second resurrection. But that hasn't happened yet. And so we lay hold of that by faith. Even though it's spoken of as an accomplished fact, 
in the same way that predestination and calling and justification are. That's the kingdom dynamic of the already and not yet. You have come to the myriads of angels in festal gathering, singing praise and glory and honor to our God. The third, he says, the, you've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, I agree with those writers who say this is actually talking about the church. This is us now. We are part of the assembly of the firstborn, and our names are enrolled in heaven. Our names have been written. Hear me, Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name was not written down because you began to trust in Jesus Christ. You began to trust in Jesus Christ because your name was written there. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. Whom he predestined, he called. But we are part of this assembly. That word is ecclesia, those called out ones. It's the word that's commonly used for the church in the New Testament. We are the assembly. We are the church of the firstborn, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our names are on his hands. Our names are in the Lamb's book of life. We are enrolled in heaven. These images that you see of people arriving at the pearly gates and Peter's checking the book to see if your name is written down, that's not terribly far from the truth. Now, I don't think it's quite like that, but there's a list. Is your name on it? Are you in Christ? You can't know if you're not a Christian, whether your name's on it or not. All you can know is he says, come to me. All you who are weary, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. You've heard the illustration, possibly, where some walk through a door, and at the door it says, whosoever will may come. That's all you know. Whoever will may come. I will. And you go through the door, and you look back on the back side of the, uh, of the door header, and it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. See, you and I are not responsible to discover the secret decrees of God. We're responsible to obey his command, his invitation, and to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. But if you're a Christian, you have come to this, you're part of this assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Our entrance is by invitation only. If you're a believer in Jesus, your name is on the register and you're guaranteed entry. Fourthly, it says, we have come to God, the judge of all. He's invited us to draw near to him with confidence, not no longer stay away, but draw near. Sinai says, stay away. Zion says, draw near. And even though God is declared here to be the judge of all, we don't come before him as a judge who will condemn us. His justice has been fully satisfied in his son Jesus. Jesus hanging on the cross said, it's finished. All the penalty for our sins is covered in his atoning work. He achieved for us a perfect righteousness that we then are rewarded for. He takes upon himself our sins and he's punished as if he had committed them himself when he didn't. He's our substitute. And so we can be not simply declared not guilty. You know, when a defendant is in court, the most relieving words he would hear from the judge are not guilty. But see, we're not declared not guilty. We're declared righteous, which is so much better. Isn't it so much better? Righteous before God in the atoning work 
of Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to fear the judgment of the judge of all the earth. It says, fifthly, that we've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, who do you think he's describing here? The spirits of the righteous who've been made perfect. See, we've already been declared righteous, but we're not yet perfect, are we? We still stumble in many ways. We still need to daily repent. But those believers who have fallen asleep in Jesus, whether they're Old Testament believers or New Testament believers, all who are in Christ, they are the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And they've entered into the presence of our God. Think of Sorrel Strange who passed away just a couple of weeks ago. He's no longer here. We had a burial, and they put a coffin in the ground with his body in it, but that's not him. He's now one of the spirits of the righteous made perfect. These first two descriptions at the beginning of this text, the the new Jerusalem or the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, and and we've come to the angels, this myriad of angels and festive gathering These spirits, now made perfect, are there, and that's their present experience, no longer by faith, but now by sight. We look forward to that. They finished their race, and they have entered into glory. So, sixthly, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Remember, the old covenant originated at Mount Sinai. It carries with it terror and dread and distance and fear and judgment. The human priests serving under this covenant were sinners themselves. Hebrews 10 verse 11 said, every priest stands, and that word stand is significant there, stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The old covenant was insufficient to save anybody. Why would anybody go back? That day of atonement had to be repeated year after year after year. And in reality, it never, ever could truly take away sins. But in Hebrews 10, verse 12, it says, But Christ, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, his work was complete. It is finished. And sin is fully paid for. And there's nothing that you or I need to do to merit or to improve upon or to complement the work of Jesus. It's complete. We're to uh, live out what he has worked in us, working out our salvation because he's at work in us, but none of that has anything to do with our standing before God solely because of Jesus Christ. He is the mediator of this new covenant. Nothing could be added. Nothing lacking. It is finished. As Pastor Mark has said numerous times in his Leviticus series that Jesus, as the mediator of the new covenant, not only as a priest presents the offering, he is the offering and the offerer. Unique in his priestly work as our mediator of the new covenant. And then finally, it says, you've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats we read can never take away sins. But in the new covenant, the blood of Jesus takes away all of our sins 
for all time, past, present, and future. Abel's blood cries out to the Lord for justice against his murderer, Cain. Jesus' blood speaks redemption for all who put our trust in him. So his blood speaks a much better word than the blood of Abel. So we have Mount Sinai representing the old covenant, and Mount Zion, which <clears throat> represents for us the gospel by which we are saved for all eternity. Everything about Mount Zion says, draw near, come close to me. It is finished. Approach with confidence. And so the writer of Hebrews essentially is saying, why would you ever turn back? He says in chapter 2, verse 3, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. He's constantly taking us back to the fact Jesus is better. The new covenant is better. His priesthood is better. His blood is better. His message is infinitely better. This gospel is not simply a, a set of doctrines that we believe. We do believe a set of doctrines, no question, but it's a relationship based on trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the call of Mount Zion that says, draw near with full assurance of faith. Pastor Nick Offord, who if you're relatively new to us, Pastor Nick served here for a number of years uh, prior to Pastor Mark Hatfield coming. But Pastor Nick is not only a excellent preacher. He's also a very, very good writer. And he's just recently published a book. The title is Further Up and Further In, Experiencing Experiencing the Inexhaustible Gospel of Jesus Christ. The title's taken from C.S. Lewis's seventh volume in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's called The Last Battle. And then toward the end of that book, the faithful, the children, and, and the, the faithful animals that are part of Aslan's followers are, are entering into the glory of Aslan's kingdom, Aslan the lion representing Jesus Christ. And they continue to call to one another as they go from glory to glory and one delight to the next delight. They continue calling out to one another, further up and further in, further up and further in. And Mount Zion is saying to you and me, further up and further in. By faith, lay hold more and more to the glorious riches of the gospel given to us in Jesus Christ. Those riches in store for all of the people of God. Lay hold of those by faith, further up, further in. In just a moment, we're going to observe the Lord's table. We speak of coming to the Lord's table. Come to the table. Now, I've been in churches where they actually physically, they got up row by row and they come up to the front and the, 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 the minister serves communion to each person. We don't do that here. We bring it to you. But the invitation is draw near to the Lord. And these elements, they don't merit your coming near to him. They facilitate, they encourage us to draw near to him based on what Jesus has done alone. The bread and the cup remind us the basis on which we draw near. So hear me, Christian. Whatever your week might have been like, whatever challenges you may have experienced, wherever you may have failed or sinned, whatever discouragements you may carry, the invitation is there to every single Christian. We have a faithful, great high priest. And he invites us to draw near to his throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That draw near is that same word. Now, let me ask you, when do you need 
grace and mercy the most? Is it when you're experiencing affliction that is coming from outside of you? Or is it when your affliction is that which arises from within because of your own sin and your own failure and your own weakness? I say it's B. It's when we feel utterly unworthy and utterly incapable and utterly disqualified in ourselves to draw near. He says, that's okay. This is where you receive mercy and find grace to help in that time of need. And communion is a visible representation of the sacrifice of Jesus for us that seals the new covenant. The bread representing his broken body, his body that was pierced for our iniquities. The cup, uh, the juice representing his blood that was shed to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It reminds us that Zion is ours. That the heavenly Jerusalem is ours. That the assembly of the firstborn is ours. That the title to heaven is ours. That Jesus is ours. And we're his. So, dear brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, let us draw near. Let us go further up and further in. The Lord's table is for all those who are seeking to walk before the Lord Jesus by faith and obedience. And it's the second of the two sacraments or ordinances given to the church. The first is baptism. So we believe that the the first step in obedience to the Lord is publicly professing our faith by baptism and joining his church, identifying visibly with his church. And that doesn't mean you have to be a member of this church. It means that you have to be a member in good standing of your church if you're visiting tonight. And secondly, we're to examine our hearts. Am I holding on to sin that I'm not willing to release? Or by God's grace, am I seeking to repent of sin, even if it's sins I indulged in right before I walked in the door this evening? And yet, that's not who I want to be. I want to follow Jesus. I need his grace. I need his mercy. This is a time of need. Communion doesn't provide that grace and mercy. It reminds you. It's a visible depiction of his grace and mercy. So I invite you, come to the table. Let's draw near in full assurance of faith. Would the men who are going to serve please come forward this time?